is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to read this chapter of the Bible, the 22 verses that are here, and then we're going to uh, talk about them. So, 1 Samuel chapter 8. I hear humming. Is there humming going on? Okay, good. It's not my, something's wrong with my ears this morning, so I'm not sure what it is. So, all right. Well, they'll figure it out. We're going to read the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was well-chosen, Joel. It's in the original Hebrew. The well-chosen part is there. And the name of his second son was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. Unfortunately, his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from this day, I brought them, uh, as they have done from the day, I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told them all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. Now we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel for a number of months now, and finally here we come to the transition, a major transition of the book, where we're going to start to talk about kings. Usually when you think of 1 Samuel, you think of David, or you think of Saul, these two first great kings. And the story tells us how they got their thrones, and what became of them when they became kings, and how it affected their personal lives and their families. Finally here, we are at that point, this major transition to the kingdom. Israel moves from being a loose confederation of tribes to this kingdom state. 
It's a major transition in the book. It's a major transition for the nation as well. We start this uh, chapter. This is a whole new form of government for Israel. It's a radical change in their society. It would be as radical as it was for our own country to go from being part of a kingdom to being a republic. Just a massive transition. And there were a lot of factors that were involved in this transition. Social, political, military, economic. But the main issue that this text points to is actually spiritual. It's a spiritual issue that's driving them. You saw that in verse 7. The Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. We should think about this for a minute. Because this is the key to the whole chapter. In fact, it's how you're supposed to see yourself in this story. They have rejected me as being king. This is a pattern, apparently, that has been going on for a long time. Verse 8 says, They have done this from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day they've been forsaking me and serving other gods. They have been rejecting God's plan and rejecting God's purposes. They have been pursuing their own agenda. They've forgotten His laws. They've spurned His worship. They've neglected His promises. They want to pursue a life of their own making. Do you remember the name J.R. Ewing? Uh, you probably need to be in a certain chronological sweet spot to know that name well. Uh, J.R. Ewing was a character on the television soap opera Dallas. It aired on Friday nights from 1978 to 1991, 14 seasons. Larry Hagman, who played J.R. Ewing, was at one point in time the highest paid actor on television. One of the cowboy hats that he used to wear on his show is in the Smithsonian. You could go see it with Dorothy's slippers and Kermit the Frog. There they are in the Smithsonian. Uh, one of the, the season, season's cliffhangers uh, gave rise to a question that is still occasionally asked in pop culture. Somebody tried to assassinate J.R. Ewing, and the question that all summer long between the seasons, people were asking, who shot J.R.? Well, J.R. Ewing was a, a cheater. He was a villain. He was a manipulator. He was a philanderer. For 14 seasons, over 14 seasons, he was involved in some way with 29 different women on the show. Now, the chief victim of his, idol, uh, of his adultery was his long-suffering wife, whose name was Sue Ellen. She, was, she knew about it. She was an alcoholic. Um, J.R. Ewing was in a marriage, but he was constantly chasing other relationships. The Israelites are in a covenant relationship with God and they are constantly chasing other gods and other plans and other priorities and other things. This is just what characterizes them. They are a philandering people. You're meant to see yourselves here in this text because the temptation to reject God's plans and purposes is universal and it's almost constant. I've spoken about this before uh, with you, but my dog and I walk through town in the morning sometimes. Uh, when, when Stella was a puppy, we used to take her on a leash, and it was relatively easy. As she started to grow, uh, we started to look for other collars that would make it more possible to walk with Stella. Stella is a draft dog. By breeding, uh, she has this natural instinct to pull. If your dog weighs eight pounds and pulls on the leash you can probably handle it. But if your dog is 75 pounds and it, their parents for years have been pulling carts through the Swiss Alps, 
you might need something else. So we bought something. It's called a gentle leader. It's the most misnamed product in the whole world. Uh, it, it works. It works really well. We put it on her. She is used to it. She's supposed to walk by my side. That's how we're supposed to. And most of the time when we're walking through town, it's very easy. The, the hardest part is just holding the leash up because she just gently walking with me. Every now and then, though, she sees something or someone. This week, it was ducks. They weren't in the Millersville Pond where they belonged. They were up on the street. And Stella saw the ducks and lunged for them. Well, I had the leash in my hand, so she didn't make it very far. We're constantly under the impression as people that there is something better, something easier, something more interesting, something more satisfying away from the plans and purposes of God. And the Bible says it in multiple ways. It never uses the analogy of Bernese mountain dogs, but it says we are like sheep that have gone astray. Why is rejecting God so compelling? Why is this the default position of the human heart? Why are we just set to assume that life would be better if God would just leave us alone and let us do what we want to do ourselves? And the text here is to answer that question. In fact, there's two answers to that question. Why is rejecting God so compelling? I want to share them with you as as we go through the text. We're going to first walk through what's here, and then I'll try to unfold them as we go along. I want to show you that this is what actually this text is teaching. Why is rejecting God so compelling? Well, uh, let's look at the chapter here. Uh, as the chapter opens, Samuel is old. Samuel's been leading the nation of Israel for most of his life, and now he's old. Some scholars speculate that he is somewhat north of 80. And the pressing concern that they have is, uh, who's going to replace Samuel when he dies? The text tells us that he appoints his sons. The problem is that they're not honorable men. They use their office as judges to to enrich themselves. They take bribes. It's not going to go well. Uh, Remember Eli? Eli was a priest who had the same problem. He had sons who were scoundrels. Now Samuel has sons who are scoundrels. That's a problem. Actually, I wonder if Samuel knew that. I I think he maybe did. Samuel says, uh, well, the text says that he put his sons down in Beersheba. Uh, back in chapter 7, Samuel has, has been kind of a circuit judge. He's been traveling around, and he's basically been in the middle of the nation of Israel, all those cities it mentions, basically in the middle, the circle. Beersheba is way down in the south. And he puts his sons there. Why? Maybe he wants to put them in a place where they can do less damage. I think he knows maybe what's going on. So uh, the people are dissatisfied with this arrangement, so they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we want a king. What's driving this request? There's a number of things. Um, It's not central to this chapter, but I think there's military issues involved. If you flip over with me to 1 Samuel 12.12, look what 1 Samuel 12.12 says. 1 Samuel 12.12, Samuel is preaching to the people. This is actually his farewell to them, and he says... When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So they're afraid of the Ammonites. That's why they want a king, in part. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11, we'll get to this in a few weeks, tells us that one of Saul, the first king's great victories, was over the Ammonites. That's the issue. They're afraid. Another factor involved, I think, is that it seems like the people don't like the system that they have. 
Or maybe it's not working very well. Let, let me describe it to you here. First of all, the Bible tells us here that God is the king of the nation. We read it in 1 Samuel 12, 12. God is your king. Or Numbers 23, 21 says, No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king, namely the Lord their God, is among them. God is their king. Everything that they're supposed to look for, that other nations look for a human ruler, they're supposed to look to God for because he is their king. Now, how has that worked out? Well, the record is a bit mixed if you read the Bible. It's not God's fault. The record is a bit mixed. On the one hand, with God as their king, they have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They have entered into a covenant with God. that He has sustained them and disciplined them in the wilderness. He's led them into the promised land. They've conquered most of their enemies, and there they are. That's not bad. God's the king. <laughs> but the book of Judges ends over and over and over again saying, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when everyone does what's right in his own eyes, society starts to dissolve. Judges depicts this most graphically by showing what happens to the women. No healthy culture tolerates the abuse of women. God is king. The results are mixed, not because of God, but because of the Israelites. Deuteronomy 16, actually, I, I think I, I printed that for you, tells us, I did, what's supposed to happen on the ground here. So God is the king. What's supposed to happen locally, regionally, small here? Look what it says. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land your God, land the Lord your God is giving you. Here's the problem. Actually, this passage is relevant, 1 Samuel 8, for a number of reasons. Samuel is appointing judges. He's trying to do what this text says. That's good. But his sons that he appointed are guilty of these crimes that are condemned in Deuteronomy 16. That's bad. I think what's happening here is that there were supposed to be local regional leaders capable of producing local leadership, but the society is so broken that they're not actually producing these leaders. There's nobody who can do this. Samuel isn't apparently able to do it in his house, and it's not happening in these villages that they're producing men that are capable of this sort of leadership in the nation. Every fall towards the beginning of the school year, we get a note, three of them actually at our house, maybe only two now, uh, from the school nurse asking us to prove that we have taken our children to the dentist. I, it makes me mad every year. Uh, it's not the job of the schools to make sure that I am taking my children to the dentist. It's my job to make sure that my children go to the dentist. But you know the problem. There were not enough parents in Pennsylvania taking their children to the dentist. So the legislature, in all of its wisdom, uh, appointed the school nurse, as if they don't have enough to do as it is, appointed the school nurse to ensure that all children are being taken to the dentist. Oh, they do the same thing with immunizations. You have to prove to the school that your child has gotten all its shots before you can enroll your child in the school. When families are weak... 
When families are weak, there is always this temptation to, have, to look to the government to fill the gap. So what's happening here in this passage. Now, whether it can fill the gap or whether it should fill the gap is actually one of the great arguments that happens between conservatives and progressives. And this is one of the great debates of our political culture. We'll come back to that uh, briefly in a few minutes. But notice, these judges, Samuel can't do it in his house. The villages aren't doing it in their local regional community. They're not producing honorable leaders, so they want something different. Uh, Their request, though, for a king comes modified with this little phrase. Actually, that's the heart of the problem. We want a king to lead us who will be just like all the other nations. Just so we can be just like all the other nations. Just like everyone else. And here we find the first reason why rejecting God is so compelling. Why is it so compelling? It's compelling because we want to be like other people. We want to be like other people. We want to have what other people have, and we want to be what other people are. It's just this natural inclination. It's comfortable. It's um, uh, more secure. We just want to be like them. That's why Romans 12.2 warns us, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, this constant temptation, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. The Israelites were supposed to be different than other nations. God had told them that over and over and over again. You are my people. You're not supposed to be like the other nations. But instead, they want to be just like them. Now, let me explain and apply that maybe uh, with a couple of illustrations. So imagine that your 15-year-old daughter comes home from school one day and she says, She wants a boyfriend just like all her friends at school. It's not going to happen this way. Okay, That's not the way this happens. And what I'm going to say in the next few seconds is not what you should say in response. Okay, Don't say this. You've got to be a little bit more gentle about this. But I want a boyfriend just like all my friends at school. Now, you say, you don't need a boyfriend. Don't say this. You make it up. Gentler. Okay? You don't need a boyfriend. No 15-year-old girl in the world needs a boyfriend. And secondly, the type of boyfriend preferred by your 15-year-old friends is not the standard in our house for such social relationships. Okay? There is not a 15-year-old boy on the planet who currently meets the standard in this house for social interactions of the boyfriend variety with you. Okay? You, you, Say that differently, all right? You'll have to say that differently. You want a boyfriend like all of your friends? We don't trust them to decide what a boyfriend should be or should be like, right? Your friends don't set the standard for what a boyfriend is to do. Okay, Uh, maybe, uh, I wonder if you've maybe thought about this. Uh, Sometime when you're in your 50s, uh, maybe earlier, maybe later, your peers will start thinking about this and they'll start talking more and more about retirement. I know, you've got some guy in your office who's like 27 who comes in and says, oh, I can't wait till I retire. And you're like, dude, just be quiet. But sometime in their 50s, people really start thinking about this. Right? What's retirement supposed to be like in the United States? What are you supposed to do when you're retired in the United States? Nothing. A lot of nothing. You're supposed to do nothing at the beach 
and nothing in your hammock and nothing in your RV. Nothing. No commitments, no responsibilities, no headaches, no appointments except maybe on the first tee once a week. Right? That's what retirement is. Who sets that agenda, though? Who determined that the last 20 to 30 years of your life, you're not supposed to have any significant accomplishments? Who set that standard? I want a boyfriend just like everyone else. I want a retirement just like everyone else. I want a king just like everyone else. See the problem? Now, Deuteronomy 17, 14, God had foreseen this. Language is the same. Look what Deuteronomy 17, 14 says. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and you have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Now, and then in the following few verses there, it's not printed, he, he talks about the sort of king that God is going to choose for them and that sort of king is unlike any of the kings of the other nations around them. <laughs> I understand that there's a leadership crisis going on here. I understand that. I I even read in the Bible that God has intended to give the people a king. He had told Abraham that his descendants would be kings. But instead of coming to Samuel and saying, give us a king after God's own heart, they want a king just like everybody else, just like all the other nations. Here's the call to conform Tell me, you who are outside of the community of the gospel, tell us what we're supposed to be like. Tell us what we're supposed to love. Tell us what we're supposed to value so we can conform to it. And you'll receive indoctrination in every form, every realm of your existence. You can find instructions about what sort of car you're supposed to buy and why, what sort of house you're supposed to own and why, how you're supposed to work, how you're supposed to rest, how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to feel, how you're supposed to parent, and how you're supposed to vote, and how you're supposed to do sports. There's no end of messages about how you're supposed to be. I get discouraged, I, I get discouraged a little bit when the pressure comes to us to conform in our worship. Actually, that pressure comes more from inside the church than from outside the church. If we could just make what we do on Sunday mornings more entertaining, more familiar, more palatable to those outside the church, we could attract them in. Pastor Scott told me this week about a friend of his who is celebrating online how well his church band can do covers of well-known musical hits. That's grievous to me. The reason that's grievous to me is uh, we don't get our standards for what we're supposed to do inside the church from those outside the church. God tell us we're supposed to be different? We're supposed to be a little strange? Not weird, but but alien in a stunning sense? Besides, I don't care how good your band is, it's never going to be as good as the Grammy winners that you're trying to imitate. Carl Truman, I think he stole it from a television show, I'm not sure. Carl Truman said uh, the, the problem with Christian rock is that it's neither Christian nor rock and it's insulting to both. Let's be really good at being really different. Can we do that? Let's be really good at being really different in our dating and in our retirement and in our worship 
and in our shopping and in our caring for one another. Let's be really good at being really different. Remember the lines from James 3. James writes this, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving, and it's considerate. You know how ha- I, I'm so happy when I come Sunday mornings and I walk up the hill, and uh, it's not uh, that big a hill, uphill, in the snow, both ways. It's uh, when I come up to church and the worship team is practicing, these servants have practiced and are ready, they always park almost as far away from the door as they can get. It's just kind, right? considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's be really good at heavenly wisdom. Be really good at being really different. So the first reason why rejecting God is so compelling is because we have within us this desire to be like other people. Let me give you the second reason right now, and then we're going to go back into the text. We'll pick up the story again here. The second reason why rejecting God seems so compelling is because we want an easier life. We want an easier life. We think it will be easier to not do things God's way. This is the impression we have. If we, if we just, if there were just some of these commands in this book, life would be easier, right? We wouldn't have as much guilt. We'd be a little happier. Um, uh, we'd be, uh, it would just be nicer, more satisfactory if we could just, if God would just let us do things ourselves, it would just be easier. I think you can see that most clearly in the passage in verse 20. We'll get to the other parts in a minute. But verse 20, we want a king to go out and fight for us. We want a king to fight our battles for us. Now remember, that, that, that strikes a tone. It should strike you. Remember what's happened in 1 Samuel already with the Philistines. The Israelites took the Ark of God out into battle, this box that symbolized God's presence. They took it into battle. What happened? They were slaughtered. It was a shellacking. The Philistines shellacked the Israelites. They captured the Ark of the Covenant and they, they took it. That did not go so well. Eventually, though, 1 Samuel 7, we just read it a few weeks ago, they did actually conquer the Philistines, but how did they do it? Only after they returned to the Lord and they got rid of all of their idols. Seems like the hard way. Can't we just have a king who will go and fight for us? I mean, let the king, let the king go and deal with his with Yahweh. The king's supposed to have a special relationship with God anyway. Let him do it. Let him worry about his idols, and he can go fight for us. And then we won't have to. It'll just be easier. We don't want all that devotion. It's just too hard. You know that temptation. It appears a lot easier to get financial security. If you want to have financial security, what's the easiest, or the appearance, the easiest way to get financial security? Go buy a lottery ticket and win. That's so easy. You do it at Turkey Hill, or you do it anywhere. Just buy, go buy a ticket and get financial security. It's so easy, right? It appears at first a lot easier. It's a lot easier to, uh, 
to do that than to go to work and to save and to budget. It's a lot easier to let the state care for my children's teeth than to do it myself. But with that attitude, you actually can't sustain a life. You can't sustain a friendship that way. You can't sustain a marriage that way. Larry Crabb is a fine author and a counselor. He once said that he believed that most, now not all, most, I'll just say that again, that most, but not all, of the counseling that professional Christian counselors do would be unnecessary if people within the church were caring for one another as God calls them to do. Interesting. That's why we have growth groups. Growth groups, though, are harder than hiring a counselor, and most growth groups won't take your insurance. Let's look at the text again here. Um, Samuel, in verse 6, takes a request to God. He's the mediator in this passage. The Lord tells the people to give them... Uh, God tells Samuel to give the people a king. That's surprising, isn't it? They want a king. They're asking for bad reasons. God tells Samuel to give him one. Except at times, God does give the people what they want as a form of discipline. Remember the quails? They wanted meat. God sent them quails. Lots of quails. <laughs> Didn't work out so well. Um, then he tells Samuel, warn the people. Verse 9 says, warn them solemnly. Here is a reminder, brothers and sisters, of the great kindness and mercy of God. Here are his people in the process of rejecting him, turning from him. They have no interest in having him be their king, and God still sends a prophet to warn them. You see, he's gracious. He's very gracious to his people. Now, the warning that happens here is one of Samuel's longest speeches. This is verses 10 through verse 18. What does he warn them about? He warns them that the monarchy will be oppressive. Robert Alter is a Jewish scholar. He teaches or has taught rather at, the, uh, at Berkeley, at Berkeley University there, for a number of years, and he teaches Old Testament. And he says that on the basis of this, Samuel the prophet, on the basis of this speech, would make an excellent libertarian. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not a Green Party member. He's not a communist. He's a libertarian. Now, a libertarian is someone who uh, values in their political uh, arena liberty above all else, and they're suspicious of government power. They want the government to be as small and powerless as possible. He, this is a good like, libertarian text for you. If they ever ask me to preach at a libertarian convention, this is the passage that I'm going to use. They'll never ask me, but this is the one I'm going to use. Right? Um, this week, when uh, details of President Trump's uh, proposed budget became public, there's a lot of quoting of Matthew 25, the least of these. Let's think about the least of these, a lot of quoting out of the context of Matthew 25. No one was quoting out of context 1 Samuel 8, but it would have been a great strategy. Here's what you'll find. There's warnings here about the oppressive power of the king. All the king does is take. He will take what is rightfully yours. Verse 11. He will take your sons, verse 13. He will take your daughters, verse 14. He will take the best of your fields, verse 15. He will take a tenth of your grain, verse 16. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take, verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks. He's going to take and take and take and take and take from you. And you know what you're going to be? You're just going to be his slaves, that's what's going to happen. 
It's a fine piece of libertarian rhetoric, except that's not the point of the passage. The point is this. Samuel is here to warn the people. This is what happens when you reject God. You think you are taking the easier path by getting your own king, but you will pay dearly for it. Whatever you replace God with, whatever you replace him with, yourself, someone else, some other philosophy, it will enslave you, it will steal from you, it will make your life worse. The king that Samuel describes here sounds an awful lot like Pharaoh, doesn't it? All these chariots, all this wealth, all this army, all these bakers. They've already been slaves of Pharaoh, and now they're asking for another one because they don't want God to be their king. You will never find a master as generous as God himself. You will find plenty of masters who will make promises to you, but they will not deliver as, as the old saying goes, right? Sin will take you farther than you want to go and cost you more than you want to pay. It is hard. It is hard to pursue sexual purity. If Jesus said, if you have to, cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye. It's hard. Pornography will cost you more. It is a great challenge to live a life that leads to great generosity. But greed and selfishness is worse. <coughs> it will sometimes feel impossible to live a life uh, that uh, forgiving someone who has hurt you grievously. It will feel impossible to do that sometimes. But it is small in comparison to the toll that bitterness will bring in your life. Some of you, 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 you want to... You're just naturally inclined. This is the way it is. You give your life to your career and your job is your God. Your job will be an unkind master. Your family. Your family will be an unforgiving tyrant in your life. Jesus himself was talking about this, I think. Uh, Fred read from John 10. He said, you know, I'm not a thief who has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm not like a gatekeeper or a hired hand um, who runs away when danger comes. I'm a good shepherd. I am a good shepherd and I have come to lay down my life for my sheep. God is a king who does not take and take and take and take. God is a king who gives and gives and gives and gives. You will never find a master as generous as God himself. Jesus said, I did not come to serve, to, sorry, I, I did not come to be served, but I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. You have questions about the generosity of God? When you look at the cross, you will understand you are that guilty you are so guilty that this, in this act of rejecting God's plans and purposes that you deserve to die. But you are so loved that God has come to die in your place. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation of the Bible is extended to you to come and to believe, to turn and trust in Jesus the Savior who died the death you should have died and lived the life that you should have lived. Turning to him, you find life in his name. 
Samuel spoke to the people. He announced this all to them. And they refused to listen. It's the same language that Pharaoh used, actually, in, in Exodus. Moses spoke to him. He's like, he refused to listen. We're going to see in coming weeks what happens when God gives the Israelites the king they want. A king just like all the other nations. It's a disaster. The temptation to reject God is great. It's universal. It's constant. It's the natural inclination of every human heart. And it always ends in disaster. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your great compassion and mercy toward the Israelites that you warned them. You warned them about what would happen even as as they're rejecting you, you warned them of the consequences of the choices that they were making. Oh Lord, I do pray that you would give us ears to hear soft hearts before you that we would heed these warnings. Lord, we are constantly beset by temptations. The temptation to um, get our standards from those who know not the Lord Jesus. To live our lives according to someone else's playbook or plans or rules. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember your great generosity. You are not a God who takes and takes and takes Instead, we serve the Lord Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, make us grand, glad bearers of the yoke that is the Lord Jesus, that we might find in him rest and hope and peace. Thank you for these fine men and women. And, and I, I'm grateful to you for the attention that they give to your word and the desire that they have to learn what it says so that they can apply it. Give them eyes to see ways in which they're succumbing to this temptation. Help us, heal us. You who proved your love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So continue to love us by rescuing us from the ways that we have rejected you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.